Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey everyone, Clarissa Kennedy here, also known as Chrissy in this interview. It's often what my friends and family refer to me as. So as my Food Junkies family, call me what you will. Today, I'm excited to welcome you to our episode with our friend and colleague, Vanessa Crudler. This episode was fabulous and such a joy to record. Her answers are so aligned with what our team here on the Food Chunkies podcast believes in. Today, Vanessa shares her own personal journey of recovery and how that has shaped the professional work she does today. She shares about the differences between PTSD, complex trauma, attachment trauma, and relational trauma, and why working on our trauma can be important for our food addiction recovery. Then we dive into one of her favorite treatment modalities called internal family systems. You may be familiar with IFS if you've read Resume by Susan Pierce Thompson. For some of us, when we make the decision to eat healthier, parts of us rise up to interfere. We find our old unhealthy routines, maybe it's binging, maybe it's purging, maybe it's restriction, and habits are trying to re-establish themselves. IFS teaches us that at our core, we each have a radiant true self that will easily make the best choices for our highest good, but we also have protective and wounded parts that are sometimes in the lead. When we get to know these parts, We can stave off the resistance and stay on track. Today, Vanessa explains the different parts of us, their roles, and some ways that acknowledging these parts can help us with our food addiction recovery. She shares who would be a good fit for this type of treatment and the stage of in our recovery where this might be best approached. We also have an exciting announcement from Sweet Sobriety that will air in the middle of our episode. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we speak with Vanessa Credler, counselor and a registered psychotherapist with the Australian Counseling Association. Vanessa is passionate about her work with clients who struggle with addiction, complex trauma, and the intergenerational nature of trauma. Vanessa has an MA in counseling is a certified food addiction counselor from INFACT, which is the International Food Addiction and Counseling Training Program, and has undergone a range of training specific to internal family systems. Vanessa has a special interest in food addiction as she is also a food addict in recovery. We at Food Junkies podcast are especially interested in her focus on trauma and the internal family systems and how that can help us in understanding food addiction and food addiction recovery. And Vanessa has the personal and professional experience to tell us. So welcome, Vanessa. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm I'm thrilled that you're able to uh, speak with us. So we always like to start with the personal story. So please tell us about your experience with food addiction, how you got into the field, and then how you introduced trauma into that. Yeah, great questions. I love talking about this 
So much. I think food addiction is my favorite topic to talk about. Yeah, so I identify as a food addict and I believe that I've always been a food addict. So I don't know when I acquired it. Sometimes I think maybe it was pre-birth, you know, in the womb. Other times I think it was really early on in infancy and there's really no way of knowing. But I do ask myself those questions. I'm very curious about that. But I remember that I was always overeating on a daily basis, you know, from very, very early on. And then that sort of turned into binges gradually as I grew up. And I also remember specifically at age around 11 or so when I hit puberty and somebody, I don't remember who it was, maybe somebody in my family, maybe somebody at school said something about you've got to watch what you eat because you're going to get fat. And I remember that kicked off an internal conflict inside of me, which was, oh my God, I really want to keep eating on the one hand. And on the other hand, it was like, but I'm going to get fat. So that was, that was the birth of an eating disorder. But, you know, I really differentiate that the food addiction was always there and the eating disorder kind of came later. And um, yeah, so that all escalated until I was about 30. And around that age, I, I was binging really violently because a lot of things had changed for me at that time. Um, I had come out of a very significant relationship. I had changed countries, jobs, you know, everything changed. And so I found myself binging a lot and just getting very, very distraught. And so then I went into counseling. And it was interesting because the counselor, after a few sessions, basically sent me to Overeaters Anonymous. So that's where, that was about 15 years ago now. And that's where I started my long journey with 12-step programs. And I had a really interesting experience with Overeaters Anonymous too, because I actually spent about five years in OA doing very intensive step work and really integrated into the fellowship, but I couldn't get abstinent. I was just sort of experimenting with lots of different ways of eating for myself, but I didn't have enough guidance in a way that sort of told me, this is what you've got to eat. And, you know, I cut out sugar, I cut out flour, I cut out all my binge foods, and I try to eat moderate meals. But what really was difficult for me was the moderate meals, because I didn't realize at the time, but I'm a real volume addict as well. So I ended up actually just binging on vegetables. At some point I got, I turned orange, my skin turned orange because I was eating so many carrots. So that's, and I'm not the only one. I've, I've heard many people sort of talk about that in the food addiction recovery world. So I did a lot of experimenting really, you know, and I had an aha moment when, uh, I was in a meeting somewhere and somebody said, I'm a food addict. And that was the first time I heard somebody talk about food addiction because, in, in most of these fellowships, often people talk about themselves as compulsive overeaters. And when the person said food addict, I was like, my God, that's me. That is me. And then I had another aha moment, which was at some point I found a sponsor who gave me a weighed and measured food plan. And ever since then, I've been abstinent. So that's now uh, just under nine years ago that I've been following an abstinent, uh, a sort of, you know, a weighed and measured food plan which has changed over the years a lot. But I, you know, I, I, ever since then, my food uh, obsession is gone. And that is my most prized possession to the day is not being obsessed 
with food all the time. And um, yeah, so essentially I've been in recovery for 15 years. And uh, during that time, I've spent a lot of um, effort really in, you know, my own recovery, doing my own therapy, and also qualifying in parallel to my own recovery as a counsellor and then also as a coach. So it's interesting because it's almost like my work in this field parallels my recovery. So, you know, I've been really personally driven to work in this field because, you know, as soon as I got into recovery, even when I wasn't abstinent yet, I was like, I've got to know more about this. I've got, you know, and I really, as soon as I started seeing counselors and therapists and kind of getting into the healing world for myself, I thought I want to do this work as well. And I suppose I've always been very curious about, you know, self-exploration, understanding myself, but also understanding the addiction and how do, you know, how do I get myself out of this suffering, but also why is it that we get addiction? You know, why have some people got addiction and others don't? So I've been fascinated by this topic for a really long time and the work really energizes me. And so, yeah, I've basically, I started about, I would say seven years ago, I, I started practicing initially as a recovery coach. And now I do both that sort of recovery coaching work, but also deeper psychotherapy work and it again, that kind of comes out of my own recovery too, because I probably spent, let's say, the first eight years or so of my journey, you know, in recovery in with symptom control, if you want to call it that. So really kind of, you know, managing the addiction, learning how to fit my lifestyle around the addiction recovery, learning how to regulate myself and my emotions and discovering a few other addictions and codependency along the way. So, you know, lots of other 12-step programs. And then I uncovered complex trauma in my own story. And so based on that, I've gotten into the trauma work and studying a lot about trauma and now working with clients on the kind of the interface between the addiction and the trauma as well. So that's kind of like a summary really of, of where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. So can you speak to us a little bit more about the need for trauma work with food addiction recovery? Because I know there's a few different fields of thought around this in addiction. Like, do we stabilize recovery first and then do the trauma work? Or is it something we should be doing concurrently? What have you found in your experience and, and why do you think it's so essential with food addiction recovery? And also just just define trauma for people because trauma means so many different things now. And what does it mean in the food addiction world? Yeah. Oh, those are great questions. Absolutely. You know, I think addiction, uh, trauma is really important for addiction because, uh, and I know you guys will know Gabor Mate, right? A very well-known addiction specialist based in Canada. And so he says, essentially addiction is a result of trauma. And it's a strategy that we've developed early in life to deal with some sort of inner pain or dysregulation, right, that happened uh, through early trauma. And so I totally follow that because it resonates with me so much. But, yeah, let's define trauma, right, because trauma is such a term that we use specifically in the last few years. It's really kind of, you know, become so fashionable almost, hasn't it, to, be, to talk about trauma. So I would say trauma is, and this is a sort of definition that I've learned somewhere along the way, really simply put, it's like an experience that happens too soon or too much in some way or for too long or for 
too fast. And so therefore the system gets overwhelmed and we can't process it. But then there is the other side of trauma, which could also be that we didn't have enough of something for too long, right? So essentially it all results in needs not being met and the system somehow being overwhelmed. And so we end up with the kinds of conditions, if you like, that, you know, if you look at the diagnostic manuals, you would see things like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, or complex trauma. Complex trauma, I don't think is in the DSM-5 yet, but it's in the ICD. And then also attachment trauma. Those are some terms that, you know, we talk about a lot. And essentially what that means really is that say if you've got PTSD, you, you know, you might have acquired it through like an event, a stressful event, could be like a war or a bushfire or a flood or an assault of some kind. And you end up with symptoms of kind of being stuck back there, getting flashbacks, memories, um, nightmares. You might want to withdraw from the world. You get really hypervigilant and worried about, you know, you, you don't feel safe, essentially. And then complex trauma is tricky because complex trauma is almost, it's trickier almost than PTSD because it's that sort of trauma that's associated with longer term, repeated traumatic experiences. Usually they start in childhood. So you're talking early childhood. It usually happens through relationships. So complex trauma can also be called relational trauma. And, you know, you're talking about terms like abuse or neglect, but you're also talking about extenuating circumstances, you know, what might have not happened or what couldn't happen because, you know, whoever was your caregiver couldn't take care of you appropriately, whatever the reasons were. And so what's tricky with complex trauma is that we don't only have all those symptoms that we might get with PTSD, but in addition, we don't know how to regulate our emotions we feel chronically ashamed quite often. So there's a lot of kind of low self-esteem and self-doubt and worthlessness. And also we just don't feel comfortable with relationships, you know. So that's those are wonderful explanations of uh, trauma. Mm. So how does addiction fit into that? And I'm asking that specifically because I want to piggyback on that. But I'd like to know your opinion. How does addiction fit into that and uh, then specifically food addiction? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, essentially... It makes a lot of sense to me. What I'm seeing a lot in my practice is that people who talk about early onset food addiction, right? So the people who come and say, you know, I think I've always had this and and I include myself in that category, right? They've always had some sort of an attachment trauma, like something didn't go quite right early, early on, and they might not be fully aware of it, but there's been some kind of an emotional neglect or some kind of a need hasn't been met for substantial amounts of time. And so to me, the way it resonates is that what what the brain would do is it would adapt to this kind of attachment disruption, if you want to call it that, right? So basically, if you think about it, if you're a really, really, really small human, and there is an absence of optimal nervous system kind of regulation or emotional regulation because somebody can't quite take care of you for whatever reason, then what happens is there's a huge amount of distress internally and despair, right? And so the brain in the name of survival has to do something about that. It has to seek some kind of attachment from another source. And so therefore it goes to whatever, whatever there is. And, and to me, it makes a lot of sense. And look, I'm not, I don't have any evidence for this, but to me, it makes a lot of sense that 
we would go to the first substance that comes our way in some sort of reliable interval, which is food, right? And so, you know, then the kind of addictive process essentially gets set off. And I really resonate with that because food is such a kind of source of pleasure, but also, yeah, it helps us to gain pleasure. It helps us to push away pain and it helps us to regulate and soothe. And I would also add that's where volume addiction fits in for me because if you think about it again, you're a small, tiny, tiny person and the only kind of relief from your internal distress you get is food. You'd never want it to end. So you just want to keep eating. And I really relate to that personally. I just, uh, and I've heard so many clients say as well, you know, it's easier to not eat at all because sometimes when I start eating, I just can't stop. Yeah. So I want to jump on to your really excellent description of trauma. As you were talking about it, I kept hearing, this is how I actually define how addiction occurs. You know, a person has a, an extreme reaction that is beyond what the person can manage. So really what they've done is the person has taken their traumatic templates and then uh, moved into using food, which then invites the very same template. You don't have just a little bit of neglect or too much. You have too much. And then you're back into the overwhelming. And then the person has to scramble to adapt to that huge influx or deficit. Yeah, so interesting. And, you know, I also think it's important to note that, you know, when this kind of early, when it's an early onset kind of addiction like that, it's developmental. So the brain is wired in a certain way. And I love how Gabor Mate, he actually talks about addiction, not as a disease, but he calls it a developmental disorder. And I love that because it just says exactly what it is, which is, you know, early on the brain kind of wires itself in a certain way. And here we are, we're hooked and we've got that wiring. And so therefore it becomes a medical condition for us. Just touch a bit. Do you think trauma is something we should be working with our clients on like from the start? Or is it something that we uh, really need to get them stable with first? What's your professional opinion? Yeah, that's really, that's so hard. It's a chicken and egg. I think it's it's very dependent on the client. It really depends on where they're at. It's a matter of priority. So often people come in and they're so distraught about the havoc that the addiction is wreaking in their lives, right? So if they're binging and they cannot control themselves, they probably don't really have much kind of emotional time and space for working on deep trauma, right? They just want to control the addiction. They want it away, right? They want it gone. So, you know, we've got to kind of start with where they're at. So if that's where they're at, that's where we start. But then, and then also, you know, you need a kind of trust uh, relationship with a client too. It's very unlikely that somebody would come in from session one and say, you know, I want to talk about my deepest trauma. It takes a little bit of time to kind of uncover those things in a gentle kind of way. And so what I've found is that generally it's not very clear cut. It depends on what comes up, right? So the most common thing that I see is People come in and say, I've got this, you know, I'm binging and I need to stop. What's going on? I need, you know, what, you know, how do we do this? And so we get started on a bit of coaching and then eventually some emotional kind of things show up and that's where a little bit of trauma might get uncovered. And then we do a little bit of work around that and we kind of go forth as things come up for the client. 
What's your uh, reaction to, I, I see this happening, not necessarily with food, but in the food world too, just general addiction where the person will say, well, I can't get clean until I get this trauma out of the way. So I got to work on the trauma first. And I'm always saying it doesn't work that way because you need to have the wherewithal and the sobriety to heal. But what's mm. your take? What would you say when somebody said, I can't stop eating until I work on my trauma and so therefore I'm going to eat? Yeah, no, that doesn't work either. It's almost like you've got to do it in some way concurrently. And so the best way to do that probably is, you know, if you've got some sort of recovery network is ideal because then you can do a bit of trauma work and you can do, you know, you've got your recovery network and you've got your food plan and your accountability and all of those things. That's the ideal, but it is very individual. It's difficult I mean, if you think about it, right, with other addictions, say drugs and alcohol, uh, there's no way you can do trauma work if you are actually under the influence. So essentially with food, you're also under the influence, right? And And we see a lot of people relapse when they get back, when they jump into the trauma too soon. Yeah. Now, Chrissy, you had a point about that some people actually say it requires two years before you can jump in. Yeah, I have certainly heard that among colleagues that they need this length of time. And and my personal experience when working with individuals is that that actually is not beneficial. And, you know, then you can also be working with that dry food addict, right? Who doesn't get that extra level of peace around food and that a concurrent practice, exactly the way you described, is the most beneficial because you're right, when somebody's inebriated, they're they're still numbing whatever it should be coming up when we talk about the emotional work of trauma. And so they won't be able to access that part of them. And once they have that sobriety, then you can start, pieces start to come together. I think for them that then you can start to discuss therapeutically. So I loved your answer to that for sure. And just just to state the obvious, sugar is inebriating. Like, Like somebody might be thinking, yeah, I get that with alcohol, but it's the same with sugar. You're still numbing your emotions. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Having said that, though, you know, what I've learned over the years is we've got to meet the client where they're at, right? It also doesn't work for me to say to the client, well, you've got to get sober first and then we can address the trauma or vice versa. It really depends on the client. And usually it's almost not even contracted. It's literally like things come up and we sort of go there right when they come up and make sure, is this okay to go there, right? And then we go there if that's okay, right? Because it somehow seems to have come up at this certain point. So it's very organic. It's an organic process. But, you know, Chrissy, I also wanted to say I've heard that in the recovery world as well a lot, uh, not amongst professionals, but amongst peers where they say, you know, don't make any big decisions in the first two years of recovery, all those types of things, right, which makes a lot of sense to me. But again, I think when you're talking about the professional world, it's about what is the client's needs at the end of the day. Yeah, I love that so much. Organically is exactly the way that Mm -hmm. the relationship should work, right? So can you speak to our audience a little bit about internal family systems? And, you know, they're probably not so aware of this treatment modality and why it spoke to you specifically and how it works for people with food addiction. Yeah, oh, I love IFS. It's a great and very effective modality for trauma work. And um, But before I start talking about IFS, let me qualify because um, 
I say that I'm an an IFS-informed therapist, right? So that's different from being an IFS-certified therapist. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, it's it's ethically important to say, you know, what are my qualifications here, right? And so I've been, I've not yet been trained officially with the IFS training that they do at the IFS Institute, which is based in the U.S., the reason being that IFS has exploded in popularity. And so there's a massive backlog of people waiting for these trainings. I've been waiting for like three years or so. Having said that, though, I do weekly IFS therapy. I've done an immersion course with a lovely IFS therapist in Australia, uh, Stephanie Mitchell, and various other courses and workshops. I've written my MA thesis on IFS. So lots and lots of IFS, but I want to make sure that I qualify that. But I will tell you about how it works a little bit. It's a great model. And basically what it says is it's got this main assumption that actually the healthy human mind is not just one entity, It's actually a multiple entity, meaning that we all naturally have parts. And so a really simple way of explaining that is, say, you know, you're sitting on the sofa and, and, you know, you're going, oh, you know, I think I should really go to the gym now. And then the other part of you sort of goes, no, I want to just stay here on the sofa and just sit here and veg out. So here you go. You've got two parts already. And it's very common. We do this all the time, right? So IFS kind of works on that premise that we've all got parts. And importantly, IFS also says we also have an innate self that we are born with. So that's not a part. So it's the self that under optimal conditions essentially is a wise, compassionate leader of a whole system of parts, right? Are you talking parts like in gestalt therapy where there's like chair work or are you talking about parts? Define what you mean by that. It's a little bit different than Gestalt, but certainly chair work can be very useful in IFS as well. But parts are essentially like little sub-personalities of us, of right? So, you know, I've got, if you're talking about food addiction, for example, a common part might be a binging part, right? And then we've got maybe another part that is an over-exercising part or a purging part. So they're all sort of like sub-personalities that drive us at certain points. Does that make sense? Yes, well, it, it actually sounds an awful lot like Gestalt that I studied in the 80s, but it sounds right. like it's been um, repackaged into a more complex, because that was pretty simplistic. So, yeah, so tell us more about how that can be used in uh, the food addiction or addiction world. Yeah, yeah. So the way you can use it, so let me first explain that in IFS also, we talk about different types of parts, right? So we've got protectors and we've got exiles. and so. Briefly, just for the listeners to to learn what those parts are, protectors are basically either managers or firefighters, and they're such great names. But essentially what it means is that if you've got a manager part, they're the types of parts that are really organized, and they protect us in ways of, you know, they plan ahead, they're anticipating what might happen, and they make sure that we function really well in daily life. Whereas if you've got a firefighter, they protect us in ways that they just come in and they want to extinguish the flame of, you know, feeling horrible feelings and they want to numb out or somehow dissociate or 
soothe us um, and they're very sudden they're very impulsive so those types of parts are typically our binging parts for example and so then just that last category is exiles which is essentially the parts that they are protecting so the managers and firefighters are protecting the exiles which are very young often very young very wounded kind of parts that are carrying some kind of a burden some kind of a pain or a horrible traumatic experience and that's why those protectors have to do such big jobs of protecting by those extreme strategies. Again, going into food addiction, that would be binging. Then you've got other parts that come in and want to do the starving or over-exercising or purging or whatever it is, right? And this idea about family, so it's not about mother in my family is one role, father's another. It's, it's within myself, the family of selves. That's right. And it comes from how it was developed. IFS was actually developed by a family therapist, Richard Schwartz, in the 80s. And so he was a family therapist and he started experimenting or seeing with his clients that actually they didn't only, it wasn't only about the family dynamics of the family as such, right, of the external family, but even internally people had different parts of themselves that they would report to him about. And so he, being a family therapist and being of this sort of systemic kind of tradition, he kind of then looked at, okay, so there are families externally and there are families and systems internally. And that's how he went down. That's why we've got the name IFS, right? Sweet sobriety workshop announcement. This coming month in March, we are doing emotional eating. Emotional eating is incredibly common in food addiction recovery and eating disorder recovery. In fact, research shows that 75% of our eating is emotionally driven. According to the American Psychological Association, 38% of adults say they have overeaten or eaten unhealthy foods in the past month because of stress. Half of these adults, 49%, report engaging in these behaviors weekly or more. Do you eat to suppress or soothe emotions, fatigue, or health problems? Eat to manage major life events or the hassles of daily life? Eat in response to relationship conflicts, work stressors, or financial pressures? Have you been concerned that emotional eating is keeping you from living your best life? This month, Molly Painshaw, co-host of the Food Junkies podcast and co-founder of Sweet Sobriety, is excited to offer you a comprehensive workshop on how to recover from emotional eating. Over the four weeks, you will learn the difference between physical and emotional hunger, identify what type of emotional eater you are, increase your emotional agility, master self-care and self-compassion skills, improve your relationship with yourself using the four agreements. What you will get is hours of pre-recorded videos with no expiration date, downloadable resources, and suggested at-home practices. Four one-hour live support sessions per week with replay. The cost is $50 US and it will be on Wednesday, starting Wednesday, March 8th, March 15th, March 22nd, March 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. If you have any questions, just reach out for us on our Sweet Sobriety website at www.sweetsobriety.ca. Now back to the show. 
So can you explain a little bit how this would be helpful for someone that would come to you for, you know, food addiction recovery? I love that IFS is like that acceptance of all parts, mm. right? It's not about there's a bad part or whatever. It's like, can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. That's where it's at. It's because IFS, it's a very compassionate way of looking at addiction. And so the way that IFS actually looks at addiction is that it's a polarity between two different sort of sets or teams of parts, right? So on the one hand, you've got the firefighters, so you're, you know, binging or doing really extreme things. And then as soon as that's happened, you know, the other side of the parts, which are usually managers, the organized ones, so that they're kind of going, right, so now you've binged, and so now you've got to, you know, go to the gym or do this or, you know, change your diet or whatever it is that you've got to do. You've got inner critics coming in and criticizing you for having binged. So the way it works with food addiction recovery is that it's such a wonderful way of getting to know your internal addictive system. And so the expression system here is really important because it's not only one of us. It's not only one person. We're talking about lots of sub personalities with different roles and different agendas wanting to protect us in different ways. And so this, the more we learn about this addictive system and why these different paths are operating in relation to each other, and importantly, what are their positive intentions? Why are they doing those things? Why is it that this part is having me binge right now? Why is it so important to do that? Why can't we do without that, right? Is this where trauma can fit in? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. that. yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, of course, if we ask our binging parts, why is it that it's so important for us to binge right now? They'll tell us, you know, they'll tell us if we listen, they will tell us, well, because X, Y, and Z, and you'll get to the trauma, you know, as quickly as that, right? Yeah. So it's about dialoguing in a compassionate way with our parts and developing a relationship between ourselves and our parts, right? So that essentially we have trusting relationships between the client's self and the client's part. So there's more control, if you like, more sort of like agency around, well, this is not me. This is my binging part operating right now. So you get a bit of distance there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that's that essential self that you were alluding to. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So are, is the goal then of the therapist to help find peace within selves? The goal of IFS therapy is essentially to uh, get more self-leadership, right? Because the more I recognize that I've got these parts and the more I can have a relationship with these parts, the more I can negotiate with them, the more I can help them to trust me and to trust that I can do the job, right, of managing my system, of living a life that is full of self-energy rather than them having to jump in and doing their really extreme protective strategies, right? So over time, it just means that I'm a lot more trusting and able to, you know, operate in the world as an adult with essentially a lot of wisdom, a lot of confidence, a lot of compassion, and not so much of those extreme behaviors that those parts often bring. But again, it's not about eliminating those parts. It's about helping them to relax, helping them to 
you know, do different jobs. So, for example, if the binging part wants to soothe us, right, it wants to protect us by soothing us, maybe there's another way that can help us to soothe, right, but maybe not by binging, right? Right. Now, how is this approach, this family within, the family within approach for trauma, how is that different than other trauma approaches in addiction? Because you're right, Gabor Mate's leading voice in that field, there's a lot of focus on trauma and addiction. So is yours the main approach or what are some other approaches? How are you unique? Yeah, well, I would certainly say that, and talking about IFS, right, how is IFS unique? It's uh, it's unique in that in trauma therapy, they talk about a bottom-up approaches versus top-down approaches, right? And you need a little bit of both. And so what I mean by top-down is essentially more cognitive-focused kind of therapy, like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Which has got its place, but sometimes that's not enough because in trauma, we often hold trauma as implicit memory, meaning that it's sort of held in the body or held pre-verbally, we can't really address it through thought or through language. It's just way somewhere deep down, right? And so we need that kind of bottom-up. And the way that IFS is bottom-up is that you're essentially through uh, what in IFS we call trailheads, right, which is maybe thoughts or maybe emotions or maybe sensations or images or whatever, that's how we access uh, implicit memory of different parts. And they quickly lead us down much deeper routes than you would be able to access through sort of talk therapy, for example. So can I ask, because now I'm really curious, it makes so much sense about being like, hey, I got this part. Like, I don't need you anymore. At one point, this was really serving me, but it doesn't serve me anymore. And so you need to know I've got the reins. And, you know, it sounds like a great way for individuals to build that insight into what's actually going on pre-binge, right? (laughs) However, how do people start to recognize this? Like, what are the tools that you use for them to like be able to pull this out? Like, do they create an image in their mind of what this one part looks like? Like, what's what are some like actionable things people can do just to start to recognize these parts? Yeah, that's a really great point. Tools, You've hit it on the on you hit the nail on the head there because one of the most sort of simplest tools of people starting working on this even by themselves is to start externalizing parts, right? And so by externalizing, what I mean is you essentially build self energy because you're differentiating you're differentiating yourself from those parts. And and yeah, a really easy way of doing that is give those parts names or uh, maybe even like a cartoon kind of character. I often say that to clients. I suggest it, you know, and and a lot of times clients come up with lots of really different, lovely it's names like, or characters. It's like Bitten's um, red dog, you know, the red dog yeah. of addiction. Yeah. 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 That's a really good one. And, you know, that's really basic kind of work that you can do because the more you do that, the more when you're in the sort of thick of it and you're just about to go on a binge, right, you can kind of at least take a little bit of distance by going, right, okay, so this is my binging part operating right now. It's not me. It's a part of me. And immediately you've got a bit of distance. And even though in the beginning you might not be able to stop the binge, but you can still over time develop that kind of awareness of, yeah, okay, so I'm made up of all these different parts and let's just have a look inside and go curious about who's operating, who's driving the bus right now, you know? 
who's driving the bus? Is it is it my inner critic, you know, going really hard on me because I've just had a binge or has had to binge a comeback or, you know, who's driving the bus? And it can really help us over time to gain that kind of a little bit of calm and if you like a bit more choice because we get more space between us and the actions that our parts are doing. And I like having the multiple parts because I've always just kind of called my attic brain Ruth, but Ruth is also the person that criticizes and shows up and like, you know, I named her Ruth because that was my grandma and that very much who she was, was that criticizer. But I feel like attic brain really could be a different name that would be more like say, who was like the party me back in the day and like to have them separate, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So I yeah. appreciate that so much. So can you let us know like kind of a case study or something where you've worked with someone and how that worked, like how that case happened? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to generalize a little bit and not give you one example, but a bunch of examples where it's that externalizing piece, you know, as soon as people kind of learn or take the approach or the perspective of their addiction as a system and take that compassionate approach around, you know, what is the purpose of this addiction and why is it that I've got these parts that really want to binge or drink or whatever it is that they're doing, right? The drugging or whatever the compulsive behavior is. And I've had so many clients say it's taken a while for a lot of them to come around to that kind of view of, oh, there is a positive intention behind this, right? But when they do, it's always this huge aha moment where they go, oh, okay, I get it. Like, I get why I do this or why there are parts of me that do this. And it helps them to open a door to dialoguing with those parts so that sometimes, you know, they might find themselves in a bakery and they go, no, 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 I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing here. But, you know, so they start dialoguing for themselves and they, over time, they kind of, they're able increasingly to kind of, if you like, take back the reins or, take back a little bit of that sort of agency and self-energy and go, okay, you know, what is the best next thing to do? What is the wise thing to do here? And uh, and not to, not so much be driven by their very extreme parts or maybe even also to dialogue and kind of hit a bit of a, nego- you know, negotiate with their parts in terms of, you know, is it really what we need right now? What is it that we actually need right now? Is there something else that might be better in this moment. Just a question. As you're talking about this as a case example, I'm thinking who would actually this kind of therapy be best for? Because I'm thinking that it's going to require somebody who's quite insightful and imaginative, like able to imagine different voices within themselves or personalities. Are there people that you would say, no, this is not going to work? Or do you think this is workable for anybody? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not going to work if you're in an acute kind of crisis situation, right? So me being in private practice, the main kind of cohort of clients that I serve are essentially those who are, uh, you know, who are comfortable and in a sort of a kind of safe environment to be able to do this kind of work, right? So they have usually they they often not that's not my definition but often people come in and they say i think i'm a, a high functioning addict right so it's the type of person who kind of is outpatient you know they kind of come and see me once a week we can work over zoom those types of clients this is it's probably most suited to if you're in an acute crisis 
it's more about okay what are actually how are we going to keep you safe you know what are the the most kind of the biggest triggers for you right this moment so that's yeah. when it, it's it's less kind of suitable for that kind of work certainly when you're in private practice right if you had yeah. a whole kind of team of people behind you it would be different but being one person in private practice you know you're working with those types of clients yeah and don't don't forget that when you're um taking the food away so this is where the trauma piece comes in right yeah well, being a functioning person what happens if you unearth trauma where there's no more functioning because they're not their last defense is gone like and, and this is a real question because in the food addiction program that we had at renaissance when they came in and they couldn't they obviously they weren't allowed it was a treatment center for drugs and alcohol they weren't allowed to drink or smoke and they weren't allowed to eat and some of them just went crazy like like the staff were saying we can't handle this it's like they're worse than the alcoholics because the alcoholics can still eat sugar and all of a sudden a primal energy came out that staff didn't know what to deal with I mean, you're working with trauma. Like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's right. What do you do? So you take it really, really slow, right? And so what happens often in private practice is that, you know, people come and see you once a week or so. If they don't have a support network of some sort, right, that's when it gets very difficult and they would just go back to eating. Most of the time what I see is they'll go back to just eating and it means they've relapsed. And that's sort of what I've seen quite a bit is when there's not that kind of support that they've got in addition, because really in the beginning, the ideal is that you've got daily support through some kind of support network, right? But again, if that happens and the person doesn't have that support network, which is also very common, then it's just about being, you know, very slow and kind and compassionate in working together and making sure and this is where the therapist relationship comes in too that provides a certain degree of safety as well right and that kind of helps the client to regulate when all things fall apart so the relationship there is really really important too and you would presumably help the uh, firefighter or dark, the managers and the firefighters you would yeah. support them to help each yes. other I guess, in that scenario. you would What you would do is more so than having uh, parts necessarily talk to each other, that you would build the client's self energy, right? So it's, it always goes back to the self. And so to enable the client to be regulated enough, to be feeling safe enough with me there, sometimes if that, if, you know, if there is no self energy from the client, it's me, the therapist, who brings the self energy to the client and helps them to eventually gain back some of that kind of relationship with their parts so that they can dialogue with their parts and separate a little bit from their parts so that because what happens right if they're in their in acute trauma in some kind of an acute response essentially in ifs language they're in their exile right they're like they've been triggered in some way that they might be traumatized or experiencing a trauma that they experienced, you know, many, many years ago. And so we help them by going to that exile, if that's okay with all the managers and the protectors around it, right, all the firefighters around it. And we help that exile by essentially being with it and seeing what it wants to tell us. And IFS has a sort of protocol around working with exiles, which is called unburdening, which, you know, might be another podcast in itself, but essentially it's about, you know, 
helping the client to heal the trauma that sits underneath it. But that's long-term and deeper work for sure. Just out of curiosity, is, is Gabra Mate aware of this uh, internal family system? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, he is. So you know how Gabor Mate, his approach I think is called compassionate inquiry, he calls it. But he also does, uh, I've seen him do a little bit on IFS with clients in a training program that I attended that he did. But he also recently, I'm sure I saw this somewhere online, he did some kind of a collaboration with Dick Schwartz, who is actually, you know, the the founder of IFS. And they're talking about the relationship between Gabor's approach and IFS. So yes, he's absolutely aware of that. Yeah, he is. Yeah, no, I definitely took uh, one of his compassionate inquiry uh, courses as well. And he talks specifically about that and how to speak. He just kind of gives you some of the language to use when you have these conversations. So he definitely believes in it. I'm curious, since we both took InFact together and you've been practicing and I've been practicing, what are some things that you used to do that maybe you found are not so beneficial anymore? Maybe something you needed to be a little bit more flexible with? Because I know when I first started, I was pretty rigid in like what what I needed to do. And like, it's it's all definitely changed. So I wondered what your experience was. That's so true. The same things happened to me. When I first started practicing, I was quite prescriptive and I was a recovery coach, right? So I was sort of basically saying, this, you know, this is how you do it. And so I even had a food plan that I suggested, not that I would force it upon people as such, but, you know, I had a program as such, right, to take people through. And over the years, I've really been humbled by my clients because I've noticed that, you know, not everyone needs the same thing. There is no one size fits all. And so I've got to be really flexible. I've been so humbled by seeing how some people can moderate certain foods. Some people don't need to weigh and measure. Some people absolutely do need to weigh and measure. Some people need abstinence. Some people are totally fine with moderation. I mean, it's so diverse and I'm just always in awe at how much people are t- are teaching me, right? So I've do- I'm doing a lot more listening now than I did in the very beginning. Yeah. And I think that that is really what our job is, right? Is to mm-hmm. see where the client is, meet them where they're at and support them with whatever they need in that moment. So I absolutely agree that I found my practice changed a lot in that way as well. What is one of the things that you find is like the number one challenge for the people with food use disorder, whatever you want, a food addiction, whatever you want to call it? The biggest challenge initially is that people come in believing this is tip this is very typical i see this a lot people come in because they need to they want to you know release some weight right so they have certain goals and they kind of just want to go in and fix the problem and then be done with it and what is a big challenge is often to kind of accept or come to terms with this concept that actually food addiction is a journey and it's a lifestyle and it's, a, you know, it's it's really, I know that in program, you know, in 12-step programs, we talk about one day at a time, but at the same time, it's also permanent, right? Like it's a kind of like, it's a lifetime kind of things. So that is a challenge for people. And it's very overwhelming for people to kind of wrap their heads around it. And oftentimes I see people not wanting to essentially see that truth, right? And so 
And that's okay because it takes time. And sometimes, you know, people are truly, like I just said, you know, some clients are different and they can just have a few sessions and it's all fine, right? But that is not the norm. So, yeah, I would say a big challenge is the kind of the whole mind shift around this is a a medical condition that I'm living with as opposed to a problem that I'm going to cure. You know, speaking to that, this is a medical condition. It's not been recognized as a medical condition. That's that's the bane of our existence. That's Chrissy's mm-hmm. challenge with the ICD and, and the DSM-5 and whatnot. Uh, but in Australia specifically, you are one of the lone voices speaking about this. What's been the reception? Are, are people starting to listen? They're starting to listen here, at least in the grassroots. Oh, you know, I, it's hard. I really do feel a little bit lonely in Australia, and I tend to reach out to international people like yourselves, for example, right? And so people that I know through Infact and through the Food Addiction Institute, there are a small number of people who are receptive to food addiction. For example, Tracy Burrows, who I think you've interviewed as well, right, in in the podcast from the University of Newcastle is a great advocate of um, the concept of food addiction and does her own research in the sort of field of nutrition and dietetics. There are a couple of doctors who are receptive to the term, but generally speaking, we're very much dominated by the field of eating disorder professionals. And that, unfortunately, I have it's been tricky and that is still an ongoing kind of, I don't want to say battle, but it kind of is. It really is. And I've had so many clients come to me and say, I went to an eating disorders person and it didn't help. And then I found your website. And because you're talking about food addiction, I came to you. That happens to me all the time. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. I have one other question that I've been wanting to ask. I'm just going to ask you, it's kind of a, I don't know, I guess in a way it's it's where I wonder if I need to change my rigid mindset. You say that you have a history of food addiction in yourself that you're, and you're in recovery and you're, you know, you've done a lot of studying concurrently in the food addiction, uh, you know, in fact and whatnot. What do you think about uh, therapists who are still in active food addiction who want to actually study food addiction and then want to become therapists, but will actually say, well, I'm not quite there yet. What do you think about that? Do you think that they can do a good job? Like, I don't know if I need to open up my mind here. So I'm just interested. What's your opinion? Being that you're one of the people who is in the recovery angle. Yeah, yeah. Christy, you too. Like, I'd be interested in knowing. Yeah. That's a great question. I certainly work on the principle of do your own work, right? So like I would not want to trust a therapist who's not doing their own therapy, that's for sure. However, I also wouldn't want to go to, you know, a drug and alcohol counselor who's still using. So it's tricky because I think addiction, active addiction and trauma are two separate kind of things almost for me. So let me explain that. So basically, I would say I'm not qualified to help anyone get abstinent if I'm not abstinent myself. I I really don't see how that's possible, right? Because I've got to be sober and sort of settled in myself to be able to take a client there. And with trauma, it's in a way it's similar in that, you know, I can only take a client as far as I've gone myself. But having said that, with trauma, it's also an ongoing and long-term journey. And so I would be lying if I said that I'm finished with my trauma work and I've done trauma work for, uh, you know, intensively for, for at least seven years, if not more. And, you know, I've got a therapist as well who's still doing her trauma work too. And I find that quite humbling because 
she's very upfront about that. But I know she's way advanced, right, in, in terms of what she's gone through and where she's at. So I suppose my answer is, in terms of addiction, you'd want to be sober for sure if you want to lead clients. That's my opinion. And maybe ethically as well. I, I would say ethically that would be very difficult. But yeah. having said that, with trauma, it's a little bit different. You want yeah. to be way, you know, you want to be way on the road and you want to be well kind of, what's the word, I suppose, integrated in some way, or, you know, you want to be on your healing journey. But, you know, people are on their healing journeys for forever, like for, for, for a lifetime. So, I don't know if, if it's ever finished in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'll thank, I appreciate your feedback on that. I mean, you would think in the addiction world that sobriety would be an essential, but it's not. Like I can be a doctor and still be actively in trouble. And in fact, that was my story for a while and treating people. I mean, eventually the hypocrisy of that got me into recovery, but it's it doesn't for everybody. So anyway, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, and it certainly, I mean, I went to treatment a few times and very much I was not the lone addiction counselor or social worker there working on recovery. But I think, you know, it says something when we can learn to ask for help and these are the things we need to do when we are in recovery, but it also makes it more complicated. You don't have the headspace if you are in your addiction to be working with anyone. You need to be focusing on you and your recovery and so, yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's a lifelong journey. Obviously, there's going to be highs and lows for anyone who has any substance use disorder, but definitely abstinence from their drug of choice, I think is essential if you are creating that therapeutic space with the client that you're working with 100%. And I think also, you know, the vulnerability of kind of sharing a little bit about yourself can also be very helpful. So, you know, I give two examples of of really great therapists that are well known. So Gabor Mate being one of them who's been very upfront about his addiction throughout his life, right? His workaholism, his his shopping and and various things that he does, right? And how that sort of followed him throughout his life. And then Another therapist from the IFS world that I'll mention is Frank Anderson, who's a wonderful IFS therapist, trauma therapist. And he says quite often in workshops or webinars or whatever, you know, that he doesn't as such believe in that kind of like, I'm the therapist and you're the client kind of authority kind of relationship. And he's also very upfront about his journey. And so it's really quite humbling and I think helpful as well for clients to know that, you know, I'm working with a therapist who knows what they're talking about because they might have been through some of this themselves. So I think there's a lot of value there too. Yeah, I know it's funny you say that about Gabor because like I saw him live in Stony Creek and he was talking about his addiction to buying classical music. And then halfway through the presentation, he played classical music for 15 minutes while we did an exercise. I was just... Loved all parts of that. So yeah. yeah, it was great. So what's next for you, Vanessa? What are you working on now? What do you hope for the future? Let us know. Next year, so in 2023, I'm starting an IFS-informed food addiction recovery group, just a very small group for seven weeks with a small amount of clients to see how that lands and what's helpful for people. And then Throughout 2023, my plan is to do more group work. So be it IFS informed or be it something else, for example, emotional and nervous system regulation is something that people always ask but ask me about. You know, how do I do this? How do I deal with my emotions? Right. So people want practical skills, and I'm really keen on doing work with clients on that in a group setting. But also what's very high on my list is 
networking with fellow professionals in Australia and collaborating with people who are receptive to the idea of food addiction because I love, for example, what you guys are doing in Canada, you, Chris, and Molly, right? You're just setting up sweet sobriety and it would be so wonderful to do something like that in Australia, but being a one person at the moment, Mm. it's too much. So I'm seeking a bit of a tribe in Australia and I haven't even started that yet. So, and Mm. I want better referral pathways, you know, between, between, professionals like myself and others and so I just want to say if there are any people listening in Australia right now please get in touch because I'd love to collaborate so that's next on my agenda for sure awesome and we have a signature question which is if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction or food addiction recovery what would you say to her Mm, God, that's a lovely question. Yeah, look, I would say I would be so compassionate. I would put my hand on my heart and say, you know what? It's not your fault that you can't eat like other people. And um, here is what it is. It's a medical condition. And here's your treatment plan. And here's how I'm going to help you and support you through this. That's what I would say to her, because oh my God, I struggled for so many years. Like, and I, you know, and even when I started my recovery journey, there just wasn't any information about this. It took me years to get all this information. So yeah, I would have loved to have known that uh, when I was really young and when I first came into recovery as well. And finally, how can our listeners find you? Oh, that's easy. You can find me through my website. My website is vanessacredler.com. So you can just find me there and, you know, drop me a line uh, through my website. And yeah, I'd love to be in touch. Uh, You can find out about my services. You can find out about my groups and read a little bit from my blog. Yeah. And I'd love any comments or feedback. So just get in touch. Well, thank you so much for being here, Vanessa. And I hope this is the beginning of us chatting even more. Yes, I would love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.